Welcome to Myths of Midgard. This podcast offers a scholarly lens on Norse myth and Viking Age Scandinavia. We'll discuss source materials like the Eddas, sagas, poetry, and more, making them accessible to all, from scholars to modern pagans to curious minds. Join us in unraveling the tales of gods, giants, and heroes. Man your oars, and let's set sail. Sail og blessed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. I'm your host, Ryan Eckerson, and I thought we'd start the first season of the podcast by discussing the Prosetta, which some of you may have read at least parts of if you've ever looked into Norse myth in the past. I plan to create a series for the Prosetta. That way I can break it up into multiple episodes in order to properly discuss all the sections in detail. To begin, let's talk about the person credited with the work. That man is none other than Snorri Sturluson. As a disclaimer, and for all my academics out there, I'm going to do my best to give credit where it's due. I researched and compiled the information for today's episode based on a variety of sources, such as articles by Geisli Sigurdsson, who's one of my professors back at the University of Iceland, as well as information from Anthony Fox's translation of the Edda, which I highly recommend. A concise and detailed summary of Snorri's life can be found on the Snorristofa's website at www.snorrastofa.is. That's www.snorrastofa.is. They're located in Reykholt, Iceland, and compile information regarding the life and works of this well-known Icelander. So without further ado, let's begin. Snorri was born in 1179 on a farm in Kvamr in the Dales, or Kvamr i Dulum, which is located in western Iceland. His father, Kvamsturla Thordarsson, called Kvam because of the farm uh, that, that he lived on, was a minor chieftain, never attaining the prestigious titles of law speaker at the Althing, and nor was he deeply involved with the growing influences of the church in Iceland. Sturla married Gudni Budvarsdottir of Borgarfjörður, uh, whose family's controversy resulted in them sending three-year-old Snorri to be fostered by Jon Lopsun, who was a most powerful chieftain, and uh, lived at Audi in southern Iceland. Jon's paternal grandfather was Simundr Frodi, or Simundr the Learned, who was an Icelandic scholar and priest, born 1056, died in 1133, and is often associated with the Poetic Edda, or Elder Edda, as it was inappropriately named, but this is a discussion for another time. What we do know is that Snorri's upbringing at Odi had a profound impact on his education, 
as Simonder and others had ran a school there during the 12th century. Such an amazing opportunity this must have been for Snorri, as most young men in Iceland were educated for the purpose of going into the church. Snorri must have been exposed to Latin, but how much of Latin writing he was familiar with and to what degree he could read and write it is uncertain. Folklore, genealogy, storytelling, and poetry were obviously part of his education and his life, and he absolutely had legal and political training, which we will see the results of in his adult life. It's key to note that Jan Lopsen's mother was the illegitimate child of the Norwegian king, and Professor Gisli Sigurdsson suggests that this tie to royal blood may have influenced the expectations of the students at Audi. So now let's talk about his personal life, politics, and death. After his education, Snorri was arranged to marry Herdis, daughter of Bersi Vermundarsson. After Bersi's death, Snorri took over his farm at Borg, as well as the title of Miramanagodordi, or Chieftain of Mirar. As Snorostova's website lists, he quickly acquired power and land, including the lordship of Lunder, Stafholt, and Gilsbaki. His standing was not only noticed by other chieftains, but by potential suitors as well. Gudrun Reinsdottir became mistress to Snorri and bore him two children, Halbera and Jon. He had two other children, Oraikja and Thordis, with other women. It wasn't too long after that that Herdis divorced Snorri, and newly single, he left Borg for Reykholt which was a central holding for the church and where one of the most important Icelandic schools was located, both of which allowed Snorri to eventually spread influence across Iceland. Almost a decade after his divorce and move to Reykholt, Snorri was elected law speaker at the Althing in 1215. Law speakers were charged with memorizing and reciting all laws that were to be in effect in Iceland, and they would hold these positions for three years at a time. When the Icelandic chieftains or their representatives would gather at the Althingi once a year for two weeks, the law speaker would stand up and state all of the laws. They weren't written. There was no overall ruler of Iceland, and at the time, this was the highest position of authority in the land. After his term as law speaker, Snorri went to Norway and stayed with the king of Norway, Haukon Haukonarsson, as well as Earl Skudli, who would later become a close friend, confidant, and ally to Snorri. Snorri's upbringing, training, and ability in oral tradition made him an excellent skauld, or professional poet. Now, <clears throat> the pronunciation in modern Icelandic is skauld, but I'll probably just anglicize it to skald, as English is my native language. So these masters of poetry, uh, specifically skaldic poetry, but also edic, were employed by Norwegian nobility to compose praise poems and to preserve the memory of those who came before them. Performing for the king in Norwegian court was absolutely prestigious and certainly a way for an Icelander such as Snorri to 
work politics and boost favor with the looming Norwegian monarchy that would one day be in control of Iceland. For those interested in seeing a list of known skalds, check out Skaldatal, or the Register of Poets, which lists them all chronologically. Back in Iceland, Snorri had tried to establish relations with the Hoikdalr family, which was extremely powerful and favored by the church. Snorri's daughter Ingebjörg married Gisr Thorvaldsson of that family, and Snorri then married Thorvaldr's widowed daughter-in-law, Halveg, to which the Snorristofa states he must have remained somewhat faithful because he had no other reported children out of wedlock. Good job, Snorri. Fast forward a number of years, and it's 1237. Remember Earl Schooley from earlier? Well, he had desires to take the throne of Norway due to his power and influence, and he had supposedly made Snorri Earl, perhaps with the intent of Snorri running Iceland after he took the throne from Halkon. Well, after a little bit of tension, Snorri left Norway despite the king's orders for he and his men to stay. But Snorri said, I want out. Despite Skuli being accepted as king around parts uh, in a few parliaments of Norway, his forces succumbed to Haukons and he was killed in May of 1240. Snorri's friend and highest political ally was dead. King Haukon sent a letter to Gizer Thorvaldsson, wanting Snorri captured or killed. I'm now going to read an excerpt from Sturlunga Saga from AM 122A Folio, Kroksfjardarbok, dated from 1350 to 1370. Now that was a mouthful. Essentially, that's an old Icelandic manuscript in the collection of Árni Magnusson. Um, and we'll go into manuscripts at some point in the future. But uh, once again, this is AM 122A Folio. And the edition that I'm reading from um, is in Icelandic, published in a Danish edition of this manuscript by the Royal Nordic Antiquities Society, Copenhagen and Christiania, 1904. I've gone ahead and translated it from the Old Icelandic to modern English. Uh, and this is something that I had to do in the second semester of my time at the University of Iceland. However, I have conferred it with the provided English translation from my professor. Uh, the translation is by Julia H. McGrew, uh, and the publishers is Twain Publishers, Incorporated, New York, 1970, and that's from the English translation of the Sturlunga Saga, or the Saga of the Sturlungs. Kolbein the Young and Gieser met in that time at Keeley, and made plans of that which was to come. That summer, Kolur the wealthy had been killed. Arni the angry, or bitter he was called, had killed him, and he had since ran to Gieser and joined with him. Then when Gieser came to Keeley, he summoned men to him. The brothers Klanger and Ormer had come there, Lopdur bishop's son, and Arni the chaotic. He then held up the letter to them, which Eivinder and Arni had brought or had brought to Iceland. 
It was said that Geezer should force Snorri out, or else kill him because he had left under the king's ban. King Halcon called Snorri a traitor to him. Geezer said that he would in no way go against the king's letter, and made it known that Snorri would not come out uncompelled. Geezer then said to go and take Snorri. Ormur didn't want to be in this plan, and he rode home to Praedapolsta. Geezer then got his men together and sent the brothers Arni and Svart west to Borgarfjordr to spy, and Geezer rode ahead with a group of 70 men, and Lopt Bishopson was in front of the troop that left last. Klanger rode to Kjarlarnes to raise men and then up to the district of Reykjaholt. Geezer came to Reykjaholt during the night after the feast of St. Mauritius. They broke into the small detached building in which Snorri was sleeping, and he jumped up and out of the house and into the buildings which were in the compound. He then found Arnbjorn the priest and talked with him. They planned that Snorri would go into the cellar which was under the loft there in the house. Geezer and his men went to look for Snorri among the houses. Then they found Arnbjorn the priest and asked where Snorri was. He said he didn't know. Geezer said that they cannot settle things if he isn't found. The priest said that maybe he could be found if he were promised peace. After that, they became aware where Snorri was in Marcus Mardarsson, Simon Knuther, Arni the Angry, Thorstein Gudinason, and Thorarin Auskrimson went into the cellar. Simon Knuther told Arni to strike him, him being Snorri. You shall not strike, said Snorri. Strike, said Simon. You shall not strike, or Ei Skalhugva, said Snorri. And after this, Arni and Thorstein both wounded Snorri, but Arni was the one that killed him. That was an excerpt from Sturlunga Saga, or the Saga of the Sturlungs. Despite Snorri's unfortunate death, he made an impact on the world and will forever be known by his famous works. And that brings me to the last segment of today's episode. Let's talk about the legacy he left behind. In today's society, going into a bookstore and purchasing a new novel is relatively efficient and cheap, but this was not the case in the medieval world, and especially in medieval Iceland. A lot of work went into creating a single manuscript, and after it was done, the only way to copy it was pretty much to do so by hand. The church was the main source for the creation of manuscripts, and naturally the works uh, would serve liturgical purposes. But as previously discussed, kings were fond of historiographical works, and and somewhat keeping up with the record of the past. Because of this, we're left with a specific sect of people telling the stories, i.e. the clergy or the aristocrats. As Geasley points out in his article, we really don't have any narratives written by the common folk. Growing up, Snorri was witness to monks and clerics making manuscripts, and as previously discussed, uh, he was also acquainted with the oral traditions of pre-Christian times. He was a man at a technological crossroads, so to speak. 
It may be difficult to think of a book or a manuscript as technology, but the ability to record information and transport it was a luxury during this day and age. Snorri was able to capture this innovation and generate some of the most famous works of the medieval Icelandic period and arguably the world of mythology. Snorri's Heimskringla, or Chronicles of the Norwegian Kings, is his first claim to fame. Snorristofa states that Sæmundur Frodi, Sæmundur the Learned, had most likely already written in Latin about previous kings, but we have no copies of these works. Snorri's writing demonstrates political ideals and motivations of the educated medieval Icelandic society and their perception on kingship. And what makes this work even more unique is his quoting of skaldic verses that we have written nowhere else previously. He's also been credited with the composition of Eil Saga, which is an amazing saga, and we will absolutely discuss it in the future. A quick sidebar, though, authorship was a bit strange back during these times. Uh, today we think about authors as someone who writes, and you write it, you put your name on it. Oftentimes, scribes would not sign their work, and uh, some were written by multiple scribal hands. In the case of Snorri, it could be that he dictated while other people wrote, uh, as evidenced in a certain line being found in the saga of Olaf Tryggvason, which says, quote, I want the next thing to be written down to be about Icelandic men, end quote. Now that we know about Snorri, his life, his politics, and some of his work, we can talk about the prose Edda. Now, what is Edda? Where do we get the name? What does it mean? Uh, to be frank, scholars are still not quite 100% sure about the name. There are four extant manuscripts of the Prosetta. That means there are four left in existence. There's one in Iceland, one in Denmark, uh, one in the Netherlands, and the last one where we get the name is in Uppsala, Sweden. In that final manuscript, we find the phrase, Bok thesi heiti Edda, or this book is called Edda. I get chills when I read that. For some reason, that phrase is just so powerful to me. There is power in a name. Regarding the etymology, some scholars believe that it's traced somehow back to Oldi, the farm where Snorri was raised, and some think that it's related to the old, war, uh, old Norse word for grandmother or grandparent that, that we find in some of the poetry. Others think uh, that it could be related to the word older, meaning poetry. At the end of the day, we don't have a solid answer. Okay, so before he was killed, Snorri sat down and uh, wrote or had written all the mythology of his ancestors, and everything in the Prosetta is factual and exactly what the Vikings believed. The end. Just kidding. There's a bit more to go. Just hang with me. I really wish it were that simple. So here's what we have, just to recap. A Christian politician in Iceland, nearly 300 years after the Viking Age, He's a skald, a court poet, and he's at the crossroads of innovation with regards to oral tradition transforming into the written form. 
At the time, French-style court poetry focused more on end rhyme, was becoming more popular, and skaldic poetry was fading out. One potential motivation Snorri may have had is to counter this or to simply provide a service that was not as easy to come by anymore. I highly recommend reading the book Snorri Sturluson and the Edda, The Conversion of Cultural Capital in Medieval Scandinavia, written by Kevin J. Warner. It's an excellent book, uh, and I've cited it um, on past research that I've done, and I'll also put it in the description of this episode. To put things simply, Snorri saw a way to teach skalds and essentially codify the information that had been passed down to him orally. His Edda is a handbook for poets. Why is it comprised, then, by entire tales of Nordic myth? Well, because the skaldic style of poetry relied on kennings, which are essentially ways of calling people or things by using mythological terms. In order for a skald to understand how to devise these poems and flourish them with past mythological language and imagery, they had to understand it. So Snorri's handbook for poetry directly saved a vast amount of Norse myth, preserving it all the way to today. But is the myth he wrote an accurate reflection of what his ancestors practiced? Not in all cases. We'll delve into specific cases in future episodes, but there are numerous things we can be sure of. Skaldic poetry is often resistant to change due to heavy restrictions placed on the meter, and the excerpts that Snorri gives correlate to time periods well before his birth, and many of the mythological elements and stories can be confirmed elsewhere, like the Poetic Edda, uh, which, which contains poems that date back to the Viking Age. But as I've had uh, in personal conversations with scholars like Terry Gunnell, you know, Snorri was a member of the aristocracy, and the gods or the stories that may have been important to him or to aristocrats may not accurately reflect the way that the common folk interpreted the gods or knew the gods. And all in all, we're left with what we have, despite the many influences that could have and might have and probably did affect the Prosetta, we owe Snorri a great deal of gratitude for doing what he did and transferring the knowledge passed down to him onto vellum, which has survived to today. I would like to thank all of you for listening to today's episode. Please stay tuned for the second one of this series where we will take a look at Gilveginning, or The Beguiling of Gilving. A big thanks and virtual round of applause to all the scholars whose works I was able to include in today's episode. Please check out the description for a list of sources I used and those that I think would be useful for your own reading. And until next time, keep reaching for more knowledge.